This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to Literary Treks, episode number 281. We are your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network, and I am Bruce Gibson. I've been here for a while. It's been, I think, a few years doing the show, but I can't do it without Dan Gunther, who's here with me, and he's been doing it longer than me. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing okay. Uh, yeah, it's been a while doing this show, but uh, gosh darn it, I still really enjoy it. Same here. Same here. And you know what? We enjoy this show so much that we've spent almost an hour just <laughs> jibber-jabbering before we started recording, because there's just so much stuff we'd like to talk about that's Star Trek related. Yep. I mean, th- you know, if the other thing is this is an episode that's coming back from we had a week off kind of thing. So, you know, when Bruce and I get together to record these, it's like catching up with an old friend. And, you know, as much as we love doing this podcast, sometimes it's like, okay, we got to stop talking now. We got to stop just <laughs> chatting and do this show. Uh, so it kind of almost gets in the way of us catching up, but, uh, no, I still really enjoy it. It's, it's all good. Yeah. We're like, I don't want to talk about the book right now. I want to talk about this, you know, (laughs) so we have to get that out of the way sometimes, but I do want to talk about this book. I've been actually looking forward to talking about Star Trek, the next generation before dishonor by Peter David. So that's in the feature today. And I'm. I'm, it's just going to be an interesting conversation because this book, I can honestly <laughs> say up front, hasn't necessarily necessarily been well received by all and well received by others. And so this might be an interesting conversation. And I'm not telling you yet where we land on this. I'm not even sure where Dan lands on this novel yet. I think I know, but we'll find <laughs> out. So. You'll find out. Yep. <laughs> But before we do that, we want to review a comic that recently came out, and it's Star Trek Year 5, issue number 5. And uh, so I'm going to open up my comic here, and I see on the cover, it's a devastated city, just destroyed, just, you know, debris everywhere, ruined buildings. That's what's on the cover. So, Dan, when you saw this cover, what was your thoughts? I yeah when I initially saw this cover I was really intrigued because it's it's this really ominous 
look because we've got this like you said planet with the buildings and ruins and the shadow of the enterprise passing over it so you know i was like oh what's this all about this the the impression almost is like the enterprise caused this somehow or something like that uh which is you know not the case when we get into the story but this cover really does promise some intrigue and and suspense here when I saw it, I thought, is this the Tholian homeworld? Because there was mm. a war between the Tholians in the earlier issues. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Interesting. Well, guess what? It's not. So No, <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> so this issue was written by Jody Hauser, and the art is by Sylvia Califano, and the colorist is Thomas Deere. So let's take, take a look at this. So as we said about this uh, city being destroyed that is the actual first page of the comic so we see this world the enterprise has been dispatched to hesperides one for an archaeological dig and to bring up samples maybe not quite a dig they're just yeah there's some digging i guess but i mean there's so much (laughs) ruin laying around they just have to pick it up and so they start packing some things and they're gonna and the funny thing i thought was interesting is the as they're doing this archaeological survey and, and picking up items to take back to the Enterprise, they're only staying for a brief while because they say somebody else from Starfleet will come and do a thorough archaeological dig. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, we get those jokes over the years of like the little ship that follows the Enterprise around cleaning up its mess. But, you know, maybe they found something else for that ship to do this time around. <laughs> So were you looking at this first panel on the first page to see if there's any interesting artifacts you would like? Um, a little bit. I mean, I was kind of, I was examining the, the statue a bit cause it gives you a little bit of a hint of what these, um, this, these people looked like and kind of almost a Medusa esque head kind of thing. And then I was trying to figure out how the arms came out of the body. It was a little weird. Like I couldn't quite figure out their, um, physiology, I guess, but that's kind of what I was focusing on here. I haven't spent a whole lot of time on this. I'm just thinking there's got to be some Easter egg in this, and I haven't mm-hmm. found it. What was that little that that thing that in uh, Star Trek Generations Picard just threw aside from the crashed Enterprise? Oh, the Kurlan Nasikos or whatever, the <laughs> thing that he was just so amazed by in the episode The Chase, and then like looking for his family album, he's like, oh, toss, smash, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I expect to see that in here or something like that. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a conversation between Kirk, Spock, and of course McCoy's there too. You know, they don't know what happened to the people of this planet. And there's a suggestion maybe there was a war, maybe it was something climate uh, related. They really don't know the true answer to it, but they really don't think it has to do with war. But there was some kind of energy weapon that was used on the people, at least at least in this locale, which I like because it wasn't about, oh, what happened here must have happened everywhere. You know, I've, sometimes I feel in Star Trek, they make a planet feel too small where they're saying like, look, what we find here doesn't mean that this is what happened through the whole planet. There could have been a fight or something that happened just within this location. Mm-hmm. I, I like that too, because yeah, I hate that tendency that, you know, this village that we happen to be in is representative of the entire planet, you know. It always seems a little strange when they go that route. I mean, I understand that on a television show with a limited budget, but uh, yeah, it's. I'm glad they kind of made mention of that fact here. Yeah, and we have Doctor Bennett who's on the planet with them, and she's uh, she's got all the 
crates all packed with the artifacts and they're beaming them up to the Enterprise, but they're going to be quarantined because, well, you know, they've got other things they got to deal with because they have this Tholian also aboard the ship and such. And so, you know, Dr. Bennett's like, come on, quarantine protocols, really? Ugh, darn, Captain. Mm. But <laughs> not quite like that. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. But anyway, when we get up to the Enterprise, Kirk goes to visit Uhura in her quarters. And there, sure enough, is the little kid Tholian. Can I just call him Baby Tholian? Baby Tholo? That's what I'll call him. Baby Tholo. <laughs> well, apparently they've taken to calling him Bright Eyes, which just makes me think of that uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart song turn around bright eyes <laughs> i was like oh no is he gonna start singing <laughs> yeah so uh, i won't subject you to too much no <laughs> <laughs> well uh bright eyes is well yuhura our bright eyes yuhura is trying to work with this bright eyes tholian and try to communicate with it and it kind of understands numbers and mathematics but not fully understands it so she's trying to get to that point so you can do effective communication and she has a section of her quarters that is i guess heated that it can go in and out of because mm -hmm. it's standing right outside of like that energy ribbon or something that's like dividing her quarters in half it keeps going in and out like to get warm and come out to visit and goes back in at first i thought it was a, a force field which i guess in a sense it is but then i realized oh yeah it needs its heat yeah it's probably like holding the atmosphere in that it needs and it can i guess exist in our temperature and you know pressure and all that stuff for brief periods which seems to kind of go against what we saw in enterprise where they just like lowered the temperature slightly and shattered the whole tholian but you know it makes sense so that we can have a little bit more interaction between the characters here well she could have the heat up in her quarters or there's enough heat coming from that energy shield that it's standing close enough that it's getting enough heat to not quite shatter could be. It seemed like it was like thousands of degrees in that Enterprise episode. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> or, I don't know, maybe Star Trek Enterprise isn't canon. Oh! <laughs> well, this comic definitely isn't. So. <laughs> no, the comic is canon. The TV series is not. I'm kidding. But oh anyway, so Kirk's visiting and he even sees a teddy bear and he's like, oh, how cute. You know, you got a little teddy bear for it to play with because it was a fad in the 1970s. No, he says you should probably use what was a fad in the 1970s, which were pet rocks. And I thought mm -hmm. pet rocks didn't last all that long. So like when we get to the 23rd century, would Kirk really know about pet rocks from the 1970s? And then my head came and I thought, unless there was a mission he went on where he was sent back in time to the seventies and discovered pet rocks. Oh, maybe it's one of those 17 temporal violations that the department of temporal investigations has him out for. But yeah, that, that kind of bugged me too. Cause I was like, do we, do we remember like decade long fads from, you know, the 1600s? I, I, I don't think so. And that would be kind of comparable here. So, Or maybe he was in his quarters and he's been binge-watching on Netflix old Battlestar Galactica episodes from the 70s. <laughs> there you go. Well, wait, they didn't that have Pet be. Rocks on that series. So maybe he's watching Charlie's Angels. I don't know. That seems more Kirk speed, I think, than, uh, than Battlestar Galactica. Charlie's Angels. I don't think they had Pet Rocks in Charlie's Angels either, but... Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to find out. I have to go on the uh, Wikipedia for Charlie's Angels and look that up. 
So anyway, um, we have those containers with the artifacts in a like force field, but then something's going on with one of the containers, and and it, there's like all this like energy or something, and this humming, like something's going on, and these energy beams or these or this light is coming out from it, and that's really just on this one page. And so then we go into the mess hall, and we have Doctor Bennett sitting there. And she's talking to another crewman and she says, you know, hey, Alton, you know, aren't you excited about, you know, all these artifacts and things? And he's just like, I swear I'm working with the lunatic. And she jumps up and yells at him after all these years working together. It's like, what is going on? Like these two just like starting to go at each other. Then Yohora's walking down a corridor and she sees Chekhov talking to a woman who apparently just slapped him. I think. Yes. And uh, she's like, what's going on? Check off. And he's like, oh, I was just talking to her and she suddenly went crazy. And and then he gets mad at her and she starts to get mad at him. And something weird's going on the ship, obviously. And then the mm-hmm. same thing in engineering. Two guys are fighting each other and tempers are going wild. And what'd you think? I... I thought it it was kind of just a general, you know, something's driving the crew mad and right. like pumping up their, you know, aggression levels or something like we've that. We've seen that before. Yeah, we've seen that before. It's very familiar in Star Trek. The actual thing that's happening that's revealed a little later, I think, is more interesting. And I thought that was kind of cool that it wasn't because at this point I'm kind of thinking, oh, yeah, same old, same old. We've seen this before. But uh I kind of like the direction they take it as to like what's actually happening. And we still don't know the cause. We can assume it's, you know, that artifact that did something weird that they brought up from the planet and what happened on the planet is happening on the enterprise now, but you know, what exactly caused it and why we're still not sure. Yeah. Because then there's a meeting with Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Scotty where they're discussing this and you start to pick up that. And I, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, we got something that's making everybody agitated and aggressive and whatever. And I'm like, okay, we've seen this before. But then it's like, yeah, we start to get this reveal. It seems as if there's misunderstandings, meaning Kirk says something and everybody hears something different. And that's cool. Like, imagine the confusion that would cause if what I was saying to you right now and what I thought I was saying to you was not what you were hearing, but instead you're hearing something completely different. I kind of started to think it's like if somebody hacked your Facebook account and started posting a bunch of like really horrible mean stuff and all of a sudden people are coming back at you and you're like, I never posted that. What are you talking about? You know, it's like, I I love that kind of miscommunication here what would be more like you post something and then they go in and they change it to read differently yeah exactly and but i can't see the fact that right it's just everyone else sees it yeah for some reason when you go in it's what you typed but for some reason people are responding differently like you said something completely yeah it's it's yeah yeah. like how dare you say that and i was like i was just talking about my vacation what do you mean (laughs) yeah and what i love about this issue is when that's revealed and it's like okay there's a communication problem and i thought well this is a parallel to the communication issues it's not the same, but with the Tholian, you know, we've got two communication things going on. How do we learn to communicate with the Tholian? And now we have this thing where the crew hears something different than what is said, and they're going to have to at least learn to how to communicate with each other until they can figure out what this problem is. So this whole issue is about learning communication. Yeah, I like that. I like that kind of parallel. And 
you know, speaking of learning communication, we get kind of this really cool breakthrough with Uhura and Bright Eyes at the end here as well. After, after uh, he just dis- after sorry after they destroy a uh, teddy bear, <laughs> that, that teddy bear from before gets destroyed, and then there's kind of this cool breakthrough here. So explain. I don't really get that. Why is the Tholian known as a they? I think they're just using gender neutral pronouns because they don't know if uh, if it's a boy or a girl, basically. Okay. So I, I noticed, and I've been trying because I noticed at the beginning, Kirk referred to the Tholian as they, and Uhura did the same thing. So I'm thinking that's what they're going with because it's a gender neutral pronoun. Okay. I don't I- think it's a pr- plural thing. Yeah, because I was thinking, I was thinking, yeah, I, that confused me a little bit. I would make sense if they called it an it more so than a they to me, but yeah, I think they don't want to. I mean, this is the wrong word to use, that, and I think the Tholian would object to this, but I don't think they want to dehumanize uh, the Tholian, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I thought this was a great issue, and that's where it ends. So it's going to pick up on issue number six next month when that comes out. Um, I, I would say so far, with five issues into year five, we are we're we're going along really well here. I think all mm-hmm. these issues have been spot on. I feel like they've done a really good job of of keeping quality in this series. Like it seems like they're putting a lot of attention into crafting a really interesting story uh, and, and not rushing anything. You know, it seems to be this like kind of slow build, which I really appreciate. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. And the art has continued to be spot on. So Definitely. it really is quality, great quality. So if you haven't started reading year five, I strongly suggest uh, getting into it. I think you'll enjoy it. And with the uh, issue number six preview, it looks like we might be getting the Klingons next time. So that's cool. Yes. Lots of Klingons are always coming up somewhere. Again with the Klingons. Again with the Klingons. (laughs) So uh, let's go ahead and go to our listener feedback on Facebook. And this would be for the episode where we spoke with Greg Cox about his novel, The Antares Maelstrom. And this was episode number 279. And Stefan or Stefan, I don't know how you pronounce it, site says, I started reading it today and I am looking forward to your podcast as always. So good to have new Star Trek novels. Here, here. Can you remember? Absolutely. Remember, we had a time where there was no new novels. It's scary. Oh, it, we had a time when there was no new novels and we still managed to keep going with a Star Trek novel and comics podcast. I think we weathered that pretty well. <laughs> and if it happens again, I think we could do it again. I think so too. Well, Christopher Baca says, I have the audiobook, and I'm glad actually somebody brought up the audiobooks because that's one thing with this new uh, era of Star Trek novels. All of the new novels have an accompanying, accompanying audiobook coming out as well. So uh, we've heard really good things about the narrator for most of these, Robert Petkoff. So, you know, for those of you out there who have been asking for audiobooks over the years, they're they're coming now. So that's huge. That's great. That's a whole new uh, chapter of an audience that can enjoy these novels as well. Yeah. And Kay Frick later in the threads says about the audio novels and suggested about getting some of the audiobook readers on the show like robert petkoff and uh, she said she's an hour in left into the enterprise war listening to the the book and 
I think that's a great idea. Um, maybe one day we will have one of the uh, readers of audiobooks here on the show. Definitely. I think that's a, that's a great idea for sure. Well, Oz Trekkie uh, wrote a comment that I'm pretty sure he wants me to read. So <clears throat> here we go. This book tasks me. This book tasks me and I shall read it. I'll read it round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares Maelstrom and round Perdition's Flames before I listen to Literary Treks episode 279. <laughs> you know, Dan, I'm glad this one went to you because I knew you were dying to read that. <laughs> well, he goes on to say, I stabbed at the book before listening to episode 279, a fantastic new addition to the TOS literary universe. I loved that Uhura, Chekhov, Sulu, and Scotty all had substantial roles in the novel. The whodunit on the station kept me guessing to the end, and Sulu got to explore some of his command potential. You know you're in trouble when Scotty takes one look at your energy generation systems and says he can't help you. The miracle this time was saving the township. Four stars from me, a great read. Absolutely agree with that comment. I loved Sulu getting to be in command. And yeah, I had that same thought when Scotty was like, Oh, laddie, you're screwed. <laughs> this is no good. <laughs> I know. That was great. <laughs> and Justin Ozer says, Great interview, and I really enjoyed the novel. I loved the three different storylines. The great scenes for so many main and new characters was amazing. And I especially enjoyed the unusual and wonderful Spock Chekhov pairing. This was a great novel that's also faithful to the characters and spirit of the show. I give it 4.5 out of 5 gold rushes. And that's because we got some gold rushes stuff going on in this novel for sure. <laughs> exactly. Well, Kimberly Lawler says, I enjoyed hearing about Greg Cox's background research into Gold Rush Boomtowns, the Donner Party, and other elements of frontier living that he used to create the story here. He clearly had a lot of fun with it. I also don't know the story about naming Una, so that was neat to hear. It must be such a great feeling as an author to have something be officially adopted into canon. Yeah, love that uh, Una is officially part of the canon, uh, the number one from Pike's Enterprise. That's so cool. Yes. Jen Foley says, I didn't notice the part where Pike calls number one Una in Discovery. Now I want to watch it again, except that I've canceled my CBS All Access subscription for the time being. I'll just have to wait until I renew it when Picard comes out. Hey, Jen, just to let you know, we've got short treks coming up in the fall. You might want to renew it a little sooner or you'll just have to wait. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, she goes on to say, as to the Antares Maelstrom, I loved it. It's the best original series book I've read in a while. I loved all the references to different episodes. It actually felt like it could be an episode itself. The three different storylines were all interesting and it was great that all of the characters got their own part. I especially love the part with Yohora and the Pergeum Palace. Great that you were able to interview Greg Cox because I hadn't heard an interview with him before. I have read a couple of his other books, but not ones he's been on literary treks for. It was interesting to hear about the research he'd done in writing the novel. I hope to see another Star Trek book from him soon. You know what? This was the first time. I know he's been on literary treks before. I think we even mentioned that on the show because it had been a while since he had been on. But this is the first time mm -hmm. I'd actually uh, spoken to Craig Cox. I've never, I wasn't on the show when he was on before, and I don't think I've ever met him at any convention. Yeah, he's a great interview. I'm glad we were able to get him this time. And yeah, it had been quite a while. So uh, I think, uh, you know, 
I, I'm not sure why we didn't get him for those other books, but so glad he was able to join us for this one because I think this was a really excellent novel from him. Yeah, and he uh, recently moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I had lived there briefly about mm, 30 years ago. Wow, yeah, almost 30 years ago I briefly lived there. And it's funny, I was telling him, he said he went to a comic book shop, and I said, I used to go to a comic book shop, and we both found out it's the same one. It's still there all this time. <laughs> So that's pretty cool. So anyway, uh, thanks everyone for your comments. Keep them coming. And uh, without further ado, let's go into our feature about Star Trek The Next Generation Before Dishonor. So I'm really excited to talk about this novel. Um, I read this novel back years ago when it came out in 2007. And it's a Peter David novel. And I love Peter David's writing for Star Trek. And this novel, Before Dishonor, takes place in that post-Nemesis era and involves the Borg and not just the Next Generation crew, but also Janeway and Seven of Nine. And in a lot of ways, when you start to read this book, you start to wonder if it's a Voyager novel because it's we don't get Picard and crew until later. So, Dan, I was just curious, did you read this novel when it came out? I had read it, yeah, years before when it first came out. And then I think again a few years later when I reread uh, some of the the post-Nemesis novels. So this was actually my third time reading this novel uh, after those initial two readings back then. So this is the second time I read it. I read it the first time when it came out. And I will say that even though I'm a big fan of Peter David, this was not one of my favorite of his novel of Star Trek novels. I will echo that sentiment <laughs> and maybe amplify it a bit. Um, yeah, no, I, I I've always really enjoyed Peter David's stuff. Uh, I was a big fan of new frontier at the time when this came out. Uh, and of course some of the other novels he's done Q squared remains one of my favorite novels. Imzadi is terrific. Uh, so I had high hopes going into this novel and, uh, like I think a lot of people out there, my hopes may have been dashed a bit by it. <laughs> well, maybe your opinion has changed. Maybe my opinion has changed. We'll have to kind of go through this and discuss it. I do know that I've heard Peter talk about this novel at uh, some conventions and, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to mislead anything i i kind of got the impression that at least certain aspects of this novel aren't necessarily things that were his idea it's the publisher saying hey we'd kind of like you to do this and and do that and he's just like okay you know so i don't know if he had full creativity in the initial ideas for some of the stuff but we'll, we'll kind of get into that but anyway uh the borg are back again yes they are here come the borg again i will say that you know, there are times where I get tired of revisiting the Borg because they're not like other villains where, you know, you can have complexity with the Romulans and the Klingons and the Cardassians and so and so. You can have different personalities. You can have good Cardassians and bad Cardassians, for example, and, you know, different agendas. The Borg seem to always have the same agenda. The Borg don't really have much personality. And I feel that, you know, when we have the gm dillard novel resistance that takes place before this one and now this one from peter david that the authors are trying to bring something new to the borg to make them more interesting or make them different instead of just revisiting the same thing so i can't blame the authors for wanting to do that because it something needs to be done because in this story we do have a giant cube 
from the resistance novel that was thought to be a dead cube at that point. And uh, so at this point, Admiral Janeway is leading a team to investigate this dead cube. And once she's on board, she is confronted by Lady Q and Lady Q shows up. She doesn't know it's Q at this point. She just sees James T. Kirk, the James T. Kirk you've seen from the original series. And he's talking to her. And of course, she's like, how can Kirk be here? This doesn't make any sense. And then we come to find out it is Lady Q. And so Janeway is on the Borg Cube investigating it. Lady Q is there. She's there with her boarding party from the Einstein. It's a science vessel that they took to get there. And so that's commanded by Howard Rappaport. And we start to see that they get absorbed by the walls of the cube. And the cube is showing a power that the Borg have never displayed before. What did you think? This is like the first <laughs> chapter, well, not probably the first couple chapters, mm-hmm. kind of different for the Borg, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, when when Q, Lady Q, first shows up before Janeway goes on the ship and, you know, tells her not to go, you know, you, you shouldn't go here. Uh, and Janeway, of course, ignores her. Uh, and then, like you said, they go on the ship and are pretty swiftly absorbed into the Borg cube. I, this is actually the, the, this new ability by the Borg is actually one of the things I liked about this novel. I, I appreciated them kind of going in a different direction and, you know, the visual of it might be a little over the top or that sort of thing, but it makes sense as like kind of the next evolutionary step of the Borg, right? Because they're made up of these microscopic uh, nanoprobes that can, you know, go through your skin and, and alter your cells and that sort of thing. So if you, you know, make the the materials of your ship out of that, it makes sense that, yeah, it can just absorb organic matter and spit out Borg drones, basically. I think that was kind of a neat idea and, you know, suitably horrific for the next step of of what the Borg do. Well, and it's revealed shortly after this that Captain Rappaport has also somehow been affected or absorbed, but he wasn't on the Borg cube. I was a little confused. How did he get absorbed if he stayed on the Einstein? Oh, I just assumed they beamed over the assimilated drones and they assimilated the Einstein crew or something. (laughs) But they would assimilate or would they absorb them? Either or, I guess. Because he's not Probably. a Borg drone. In the no, he's turning side. into one, though. It's just that like the stuff is on the back of his head, <laughs> so that when he's communicating, he he's not showing it quite yet, because yeah. they, they want to maintain the ruse for Starfleet kind of thing. But they do say that like he's got Borg implants kind of on his back and the back of his head and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just a little confused by that, how, you know, this whole absorption of the Borg to these people and, and how it relates to others that may not have been absorbed. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's all a little, it's, it's different. Again, that's what we're talking about. It's a different type of Borg. It's, it's like the Borg have been the way they've been, but because they haven't been able to defeat the Federation in the alpha quadrant, they have this new Borg cube that we saw in resistance. And you know, that, that whole, novel we weren't big fans of that one um 
but it kind of makes sense that maybe the Borg, what they were doing there was maybe like a plan a, and this was the plan or they were getting ready for the plan a. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that the mission <laughs> in that novel just seemed like it was too easy or too quick to be to mm. destroy the spore cube. But I feel like that was kind of the plan was to kind of deceive the Federation into thinking that they were defeated when they were really using that as an opportunity to plan this new absorption technology to really attack the Federation. And and that could be, I mean, they, they kind of hint in this novel that, you know, the Borg cube was uh, because Borg cubes are alive. Apparently that the Borg cube was so uh, in, insulted. So, defeated that it vowed revenge or something like that (laughs) there's a lot in this novel that's just kind of really hard to get my head around sometimes uh that you know you kind of have to make a few leaps for it to all work and that's one of them that like you kind of have to go okay well you know this doesn't really track with what we were told in resistance so if we reframe what happened in resistance to fit this novel then you can make it all work but uh, yeah, there's some things that seem off. <laughs> well, I'm just going to call it out now. This feels like a comic book. And I don't mean that yes. as an insult. <laughs> but the way com- <laughs> I might. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry. comic books are written a little differently. Than- and, and when I say comic books, meaning like more like your some of your superhero comic books where maybe science isn't really doesn't have to really work correctly. You can kind of make things up or whatever. And this just, you know, feels a little out there at times. And, you know, Peter David does write comic books, but he also writes novels. And I could definitely see this being more in the comic book realm and fitting better there than maybe in the novel. I'm trying to say that without being insulting because I love comic books, but comic books are just different. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, and I get where you're coming from. Um, I'll be frank. I don't think that works in this universe, or if it does work in this universe, it works in something like new frontier where you have original characters and you can kind of do something a little different and weird. Uh, I think this style pasted over the TNG crew in this novel anyway, just doesn't work for me. Um, and and we'll get into some of the more specifics of of things that I I really don't think work in this novel. But I do totally get what you're saying. It's it's a different style of story. Um, actually, somebody commented on um, on my Facebook page when I posted a picture of this novel, saying it's one we're going to be covering soon. Uh, they said that this felt to them like Star Trek trying to take take on a kaiju type story, like a you know Godzilla or you know Pacific Rim or, or you know those kind of mega monster type movies. And I can kind of see that. Like I kind of oh yeah, yeah okay, I can kind of see that. It's it's definitely a different style for Star Trek and. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because like, for example, I'm thinking about the comic series, uh, the Q Conflict, that miniseries that we mm-hmm. had recently read, and it has all the crews from uh, TOS, TNG, DS9, and Voyager, and with the Q and the other beings and stuff. It, it's And we, we were just kind of like, yeah, this it's a fun story, you know? 
I don't see it as a movie. I don't see it as an episode. I don't even see it as a novel. It works for the comic. That's kind of where I'm leaning toward. Like, I think this will work better in a comic in that medium, you know, Mm -hmm. just like that story. Yeah. And I feel like I would, I would sit better with this story if it were a standalone story and not one that's taking place in a string of novels that make up a wider continuity, because it really, to me, sticks out from those uh, on either side of it. Like it, it, it doesn't feel like it fits in that narrative. Uh, and you know, the, the stakes are, are really big, you know, we'll, we'll get there, but you know, this Borg ship threatens earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it's, it's a lot of really comic booky over the top stuff that doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. <laughs> And, and, we'll, and we'll get to the novel that comes after it eventually. Exactly. But yeah. yeah. So the first couple of chapters is what we were just talking about, the Borg Cube and Janeway being absorbed. Then we hit Seven of Nine. And that's why I was saying earlier, if you start reading this book, you think, wait, I thought it said it's the next generation, but first the chapters are about Janeway. Now we're going on about Seven of Nine. And she's teaching at Starfleet Academy. And she hears the call of the Borg. And so she hires Anton quote, Grimm, Vargo, and uh, he has his own transport ship called the Pride, and he's going to take Seven of Seven Nine to the Dead Borg location in Sector 10. Now, when he discovers that Seven is a Borg and that they're heading toward this Borg cube, he's kind of freaking out, like, I'm not going there, and, I don't, you know, I got a Borg on the ship here and stuff. So he refuses to take her there, and she then says, well, take me to Vulcan, because she knows that the Enterprise E is there in orbit. So Seven of Nine, Dan, does you know? do you like seeing her involved in the storyline, or did you feel like we weren't getting to the Next Generation crew soon enough? I think it makes sense for the story. I mean, we already had Seven of Nine potentially going to be part of the story in Resistance. She, her shuttle just didn't get there in time. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got Borg waking up in the Alpha Quadrant. It makes sense for Seven to kind of be on the front lines of that because of obviously her history with the Borg and that sort of thing. Uh, I do have to say also, I liked the character of Grim Vargo. I think, um, Peter David's original characters are where he really gets a chance to shine and, uh, I don't know if this was intentional. I'm trying to think of when Firefly came out, but Mal, Grimm, you know, just very similar oh, type yeah. char- character, you know, kind of um, freebooter yeah. on a ship, you know, Grimm by himself, Mal with a crew. But, you know, anyway, that's kind of like that, that, you know, roughneck um, freebooter type character that I kind of had in mind, maybe a little older and maybe a little gruffer than Mal, but you know, that kind of character. And I actually really enjoyed him. I thought he was a good addition to this novel. I did too. I thought he was a lot of fun and uh, he periodically shows up within the book. I really wish there was kind of more for him to do, or maybe even see him in a novel again sometime. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I thought he had a good chemistry with seven because, you know, she's very stoic and she's very serious and he's, more loose and rough and fun and whatever. So they're a good combination. That would make a good uh, duo right there for a novel. Grim mm-hmm. and seven. 
the adventures <laughs> continue. Yeah, <laughs> I'd read that comic. <laughs> the one thing I do want to mention is the cover has seven and nine on the front with the Borg behind her. And I'm going to call out Matt rushing on this. So I apologize, Matt, but I'm sure you don't mind me mentioning that he mentioned to me online that he thinks it's one of the worst Star Trek book covers. <laughs> He's not a big fan of it. And it's not that I don't like it, but it to me looks like it's a picture of Jerry Ryan listening to music with headphones on. <laughs> I've never noticed that, but uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I don't even see this, uh, the Borg implants and she's got her head down and the way there's like shadow in her hair looks like she's got headphones on. It just, it mm-hmm. always is a weird looking cover to me. Yeah, well, the, the, the screen grab they've grabbed it from is uh, from the episode, uh, oh my goodness, I can't remember the title right now, but it's in the it's in the seventh season where she's experimenting with emotions on the holodeck and you don't see her implants and stuff. Uh, okay. And I think the reason they've gone without her and her implants is, you know, the thing that happens at the end of the book that we'll talk about when we get there. But, you know, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's intentional that sure borg implants are missing there okay yeah and your hair's down it's not up like it usually is and stuff but anyway mm-hmm. did you do you have a problem with the cover or are you okay with it or? i was okay with it. it it seems odd to showcase seven of nine on a tng novel um and based on some things that happen in this novel it's kind of annoying that it's not a voyager novel it's a next generation novel um i i think the story overall is a TNG story because the crew of the enterprise is really front and center in it eventually. Um, but it's, it's an odd choice for the cover. I actually don't mind the cover too much though. Yeah. It doesn't really bother me that much, but it's not, it definitely isn't like a favorite cover of mine. Anytime a book says, you know, the header is next generation or voyage or whatever. I don't pay a lot of attention to that. I think I've said that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because it was bugging me that I couldn't remember the season seven episode that the picture is taken from is called human error. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's not called cover error. <laughs> I'm kidding. Ah. Um, that's wrong. That was wrong of me anyway. <laughs> so now we're on Vulcan and Captain Picard is there. He's attending the opening of, of a museum in honor of Ambassador Sarek. And he's talk, talking to his widow, Perrin, and she has a friend there named Soko. And Soko has these premonitions that Picard's end is near. She's like saying things to Picard like, your, your end is near. And I can't remember exactly what she says, but like, basically you're going to die. Yes. As she points at Picard. It's like, what is going on here? And even Picard's like, okay, lady, like, I think I would just excuse myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> so it's a little odd. And you're like, where's this going? And why is this happening? And even Picard is that way. And he goes back to the enterprise and sevens with him because she found them and she's going to join the fight against the Borg. Cause that's where the enterprise is going because the Borg has a new queen. That queen is Janeway. Yes. Janeway was absorbed and not just made into a Borg, but also made into the Borg queen. And, uh, the Borg ship has also recently absorbed the USS Thunderchild. Wait, what was the Thunderchild doing there? I'm trying to remember. Um, arresting, um, trying to arrest Vargo. He was. They they were chasing oh, him right. because seven of, seven of nine was aboard. 
Yeah. And he was like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know about seven or nine or whatever. Yeah. And then here comes the Borg. But Vargo, he's on his own. He's good. Nothing's happened to him. Um, again, I thought, you know, at this point, you know, the story's getting interesting. I was trying to figure out what about the Soko thing, why she was going, you know, doom and all this stuff. I don't know. What did you think? There's, I mean, okay. This is where I have some issues. There's just little things that like, when I'm reading New Frontier, I can forgive. But then when I'm reading The Next Generation, uh, for some reason, it's just not working for me. There's, there's certain scenes like with Picard, for example, uh, in his quarters with Beverly, where Picard's coming across as kind of a joking, buffoonish type silly person. And that's just not Picard. Like even when he's alone in intimate situations with other people, like he's, he's not that kind of jokey, silly person who forgets things and acts weird. And I, I didn't highlight the exact thing I'm talking about, but um, yeah, just little things like that. There's just a bunch that I'm not, gelling with here and like that scene with soko at the reception like even just the way picard was acting seemed really off to me uh which was a big surprise because peter david has written these characters really well before and it just was not working for me um and it just sounds like i'm totally ragging on this book there were some things that i liked in it but this stuff is really starting to bug me at this point um and I think I'm not, I don't want to ascribe intentions and, and, you know, things that I don't know insider stuff about. But like you said, it feels like Peter David was told he had to do certain things with this novel and it had to fit with this overarching narrative. And it feels like when he has his own story to tell, uh, that he wants to tell without that kind of thing, it's, it feels very different from when, he writes something where he's been directed to do something. And I don't know if his heart's just not in it or what, but it's like, I, it's not even the really big complaints that people have with this novel that we'll get to. It's the little things in this novel that like page after page are, are adding up and bugging me. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So you're not a big fan of the gold key comics then. <laughs> um, I'm a fan of them for what they are, ah. but can you, you know, be a but, fan of this for what it is? Again, it comes to that problem of this is a chapter in an ongoing narrative mm. that doesn't fit the overall tone and feel of that narrative. So, you know, as much as I didn't like resistance, it still feels like it fits in this story. You know, um, this one just doesn't fit. Like the characters are suddenly acting very differently. Uh, you know, and we'll get to some of the big stuff with some of the secondary characters later that uh, really bugged me. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. Well, let's get on to that. So I'm just going to say at this point, we're probably getting more into the spoiler territory. So if you haven't read the book and you want to, you know, you might want to stop here or just continue to listen to the shenanigans of Bruce and Dan. So we <laughs> that's a great name for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> So 
we have admirals Necheyev and Jellico here in a bunker on Earth while this whole Borg invasion is starting to occur because the Borg cube is hanging towards planet Earth. And uh, they instruct, meaning the admirals instruct the Enterprise to return to Earth to face the Borg. Now, I forgot to mention here, Spock is involved in this because when we were on Vulcan at the museum to honor uh, Sarek, Spock did not make an appearance. And I did like the scene where uh, Perrin says to Picard, oh, Spock's not here. You know, he and his father still never saw eye to eye. And Picard says, well, you know, I think Spock will show up or whatever. And Spock later shows up after the ceremony and Picard sees him. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, because Picard also understands Spock and his relationship with Sarek because of the mind meld that he had with Sarek. And then later kind of had one with, uh, with Spock at the end of unification part two. Uh, so he really kind of better understands Sarek and Spock's mindset more so than parent does. Yeah. I, I, hmm. I have mixed feelings about Spock's involvement in this novel. Um, I do like that he shows up. It makes sense, you know, and that sort of thing, but it's kind of weird that he tags along for this adventure. Um, Anyway, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about well, that. Well, yeah, because I'm trying I, to remember why did he go back? Why did he go on the Enterprise? He was just being transported back to Earth. Was that I can't he remember went why on he the Enterprise there. because he didn't want to talk to Perrin? So Picard's like, "Oh, you can have some quarters on the Enterprise and stay there." And then I guess when they go after the Borg, he just stays on the ship. And wasn't that one of the jokes that Picard said to Beverly? Because Picard and Beverly are married at this yes. point. Or are they? They're together, but I don't know if they've gotten married oh, yet. Oh, I'm not sure if remember. they're married. Oh, I can't remember. I know. I don't think Q they are. Cord- I don't yeah, think I are. remember Q or Cordially Invited tells the story of their wedding, and it was a flashback, but I don't know where exactly yeah, that happened. It's somewhere close into this, but anyway, they're together and they have quarters together. And didn't Picard make a joke that to Beverly that, well, we're going to give Spock some nice quarters, so he's going to have ours. He's going to stay in yeah. ours. Yeah. <laughs> And then she's like, oh, okay. He's like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That totally sounds like Picard, right? He just, he totally always ribs his crew and makes jokes like that. Ever since Insurrection, Picard hasn't been quite the same. That's true. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to give, I'm giving that one to Peter (laughs) David on this one. We'll see him dance the mambo, you know, through the quarters (laughs) at one point, I'm sure. But so Spock is on the Enterprise and Spock goes to Picard and says, doomed. (laughs) Okay, no, he didn't quite say it like that. But he did state that the Enterprise is doomed to fail if it goes to Earth. He's saying, you know, sure, you can go to Earth and fight the Borg. You're going to fail. And Picard and most of his senior crew decide, you know what? Spock's right. We know this too. We aren't going to survive this. We have nothing that's, you know, we're just, it's just going to be fighting the Borg and and we're going to get nowhere. We need to find another plan as opposed to just going and fighting. So we're going to disobey Starfleet orders and let's seek out the doomsday machine from the TOS episode doomsday machine, because it's laying dormant at Epsilon Sigma five. It's just, you know, being kept there after all these years and being studied by scientists and stuff. So 
I kind of like this because this is a this connects to an earlier Peter David novel called Vendetta, which I read way back in the day. I haven't read it since, and it was like a favorite of mine. And I think we mm-hmm. may be reading this soon. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea, by the way. I actually do enjoy this part as well. And I think that's a, it's an interesting link. I really like that link to the story. Interestingly enough, when I'd read this novel the first time, I hadn't read Vendetta. So I kind of was, was a little lost with what they were talking about with Rhiannon and all these characters from Vendetta. But I've now since read Vendetta, and I really like that tie-in. I think that works really well. And again, without wanting to... Um, ascribe, you know, motivations and stuff. I feel like this part of the story is where Peter David is telling the story he wants to tell because it's linking to that old story in Vendetta. I think like this, this feels good at this part because, you know, the crew, the, the Picard and his senior staff that we've known for, you know, a while, they're united in this cause and they, they, you know, they, have this great idea and are off to, you know, do this. And I think that that part makes sense to me that they would do that. Yeah, I I agree with you. I feel like this is, it it was hitting its stride at this point. This was really feeling good. And having read Vendetta and then you coming into this, I like the whole storyline set up in the previous novel of Vendetta, where the doomsday machine was built from some alien race to eat I'm going to say eat in a sense, but conquer Borg because, you know, we think of it as a planet killer, but it was really designed to defeat the Borg to be a Borg killer. And this is a smaller doomsday machine. This was like a prototype apparently. And of course it's Mm -hmm. been dormant all this time for stay because there was a bigger, because you know, it was established in Vendetta, but it was a bigger doomsday machine Vendetta because this is a smaller one and that's why it's a um it's more of a prototype. So now because the crew decides we're gonna disobey orders, and of course they're gonna follow Picard because you know, we all love Picard, we know he makes the best decisions, but there's some crew members that are fairly new to the Enterprise and you know, they hear that the orders are given from Starfleet Command to come join the fight against the Borg, and Picard is running over to this doomsday machine instead and diso- disobeying the orders. So Commander uh, Kodahata and Lieutenant Lebenzon and Counselor Talana stage a mutiny, and they throw Picard, Worf, Spock, and the rest of the senior officers in the brig so that they can turn the Enterprise around and aid in the Borg battle. Unfortunately for them, Spock had overheard a conversation that they were having in someone's quarters. I think it was Kodahada's quarters. But anyway, he overheard the mutiny plan and alerted Picard to it. So they actually set up the Enterprise so it stays on course to Epsilon Sigma 5 and they can't turn the ship around. So now they have to go there while the crew's in the brig. The mutiny thing for me feels a little bit like a stretch it just because yeah but then i kind of get it and maybe it just wasn't approached or written quite in the right way but it feels like this crew is i i felt like the crew too readily decided to have a mutiny i think there should have been 
a lot more controversy and, and discussion of, do we really need to do this? Is it nearly necessary? As opposed to, Talana's always been against Picard. It seems like anytime Picard says right, Talana says left. I feel like every time Benzon is there, he's always agreeing that Picard's maybe not doing the right thing. But Kadahada always seems to be more supportive of Picard, but she quickly is like, nope, we got to follow Starfleet orders. We're throwing Picard in the brig. It's a mutiny. This drove me nuts. I'm I'm sorry. Like this was to me a character assassination. So Kadahada, for example, They've said in the previous novel where she was introduced that she was a junior officer on the Enterprise D and worked under Data and feels a kinship to this crew. And that's not even mentioned in this novel that she's served with this crew for, you know, over a decade and that kind of thing. And she just like immediately turns on Picard and the rest of the senior staff. That just doesn't strike me as right. Le Benzin, I... I guess I can see he's, he's just seems so hot headed during this that I, you know, very one dimensional. Yeah. And just like shouting at Picard on the bridge, you know, rather than just carrying out the orders that Picard has given him and Picard, not immediately relieving him of duty at that moment. Like it was just certain things. that was like, you can't just this person can't do this in that situation. And then, Talana, who, you know, not my favorite character. Oh, I can't stand but her. She was making progress. And in this novel, she just comes across as a complete and total idiot. And there's no like there's there's no seeing things from her perspective in this novel. She's like I think this is wrong and blah, blah, blah. And I believe that I'm the smartest person on the ship. And Spock's like, basically point blank to her. You're an idiot for thinking that. And instead of her saying like, well, geez, you know, if Spock, this revered person thinks that maybe I need to examine my, uh, my assumptions right now. And and she's like, nope, nope, I'm right. I'm right. You're wrong. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, these characters have gone from at least having a bit of dimension to them and a little bit of depth to them to just being complete, total cardboard standees of people instead of actual people whose positions you can see. Like, you know, I I think you can write this in a way where they're very sympathetic, but, you know, and, and Kato Hata has a few moments like that. But Lebenzon and Talana, no, they're just complete idiots this whole time. And you never get to kind of see things from their perspective in a way that makes them at all sympathetic. Maybe that's just my opinion, but that's what I got out of this. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on this. You know, Talana, the character has been built this way in the last couple of novels where she's always seems to she's always against Picard. It always seems like whatever Picard wants to do, she's always against it. And she's, she's an aggravating character because of that and has been all along. And I did feel like at one point she was getting better in maybe one of the more recent novels we read, but now she's back to this some more. And Lebenzon, you know, again, not a big favorite, but he's been okay. But yeah, he's doing a lot of shouting in this. Kato Hata, that's the one that really threw me for a loop because when we see 
uh, Jellico, uh, he's on the monitor, the bridge, and he says to Picard, no, you're coming here. And Picard is saying no. Then he says, okay, Worf, you know, you're in command now. And Worf's basically no. I forget what Worf said. He said something like, what, I've got a cold or something? <laughs> His foot was asleep, so he uh, couldn't get up. That's right. Yeah, my <laughs> foot's asleep, so I, I can't take command. Right. <laughs> Which, again, if that was on New Frontier, that's hilarious. On TNG, it's kind of funny, but it just doesn't. Happen. Well, it works to me for me, too, because it's Jellico that they're doing this with. <laughs> I guess, yeah. You know, and I feel like there's not a whole lot of respect for Jellico from this crew. But anyway, when it gets to Kato Hata, he says, okay, you're in charge. And she says no, as if she's on Picard's side. And then when these other crew people confront her later and say, why, you know, and she goes, no, of course, I'm not going to do this, you know, with the Admiral there and, and Picard and everybody. But yeah, we're going to form a mutiny now. I was like, whoa, what? Like, <laughs> it just came out of nowhere. <laughs> Record scratch. There yeah. wasn't like them trying to convince her. And don't you see this is wrong? And she's standing up for Picard, but she's having her doubts. Like we needed more time. Like we needed to build towards that. Or maybe it's not mm-hmm. so much they want to have a mutiny, but they're just feeling very uncomfortable. And it gets to a place where they're scared to do mutiny. They don't want to do mutiny, but we almost feel like we've got to do something. Uh, yeah, it just it was too out in left field. Yeah, that that kind of. Well, I I was going to mutiny all along kind of thing. Right. I just didn't want to tip our hand then. That, yeah, it it just, and again, I I don't know if the author knew about her backstory that she'd been with this crew for so long, because again, it's just not mentioned. It's not brought up. She just is one of the new people. So she'll turn against Picard kind of thing. Yeah, That's how it seems to me anyway. Well, and then we get to a point now where she releases, they they get to Epsilon Sigma 5, and of course they're there, and she's like, well, you know what, we're here anyway, so let's go ahead and release LaForge, Spock, and Seven to take a shuttlecraft to the Doomsday Machine and see if they can get this vessel to somehow start to work because i mean we're here anyways might as well check this out so she leaves the other in the brig the others in the brig and um again i think you know this is where it seems to always work the best when it comes to the doomsday vessel because now they're in there they talk about how there's assumption that this was built by the preservers and then they find that this was controlled by a pilot that was killed when the USS constellation exploded within the doomsday machine. And, uh, so seven, they go to that pilot area and seven volunteers to become one. That's a capital. O. she's becoming one with the craft because she's going to become one so she can pilot it and use it to destroy the Borg. Again, I, this part of the story i really liked i mean spock was there to kind of explain what's going on and what seven's doing to and he's explaining stuff to laforge and laforge is wanting to save seven from being i guess absorbed into the doomsday machine and she's appearing to him as a hologram and is and talking to laforge i like the three characters on the ship and what they're having to deal with Mm -hmm. yeah i'm enjoying this part as well and i i like you know, the the fact that Seven joining with this thing is, 
you know, changing her somehow. She appears to LaForge as, you know, this hologram, but she doesn't have her Borg implants and her hair is down and she looks more human and she's talking more at ease. And that leads LaForge to kind of worry about her and like, you're going to leave this thing when, when this is all done. Right. And LaForge kind of brings that neat, like human side to this as well, like reminding her of her humanity and that kind of thing. Uh, and that she, you know, should come out of this machine at some point. I, I, I like all of this. The character work here is interesting. And I like the thought that has gone into like how the doomsday machine works and stuff. Yeah. I would say this is my favorite part. Anything related to the Doomsday mm-hmm. Machine and it being kind of a sequel to the Vendetta novel is my favorite part of this book. Yeah, I would agree with that as well for me. Okay, so now let's get to the battle. So now we have the Doomsday Machine and we have the Enterprise and they're getting ready to head towards Earth in the battle. But there's these Borg-like starships. The Borg had gone into towards Earth's sun and comes back out, you know, firing red or whatever. <laughs> and then it births these like Borg like ships out of itself. Because here's the thing, the Borg cube is absorbing other things. It's, it, it's going towards Pluto and it's going to absorb Pluto and become a bigger cube. And it's going to the sun and it's absorbing things and getting bigger and bigger. And then it spas off these, it spurs off these like starship looking Borg ships, I think about four of them or something, and they go to fight the Doomsday Machine and the Enterprise before it gets to the battle. I thought it's weird that they're making Borg starships and not mm-hmm. just like Borg cubes or spheres or something like that, but they're making them look like starships. I guess they're remnants of the ships that they absorbed in a sense. Maybe. And the way Peter David describes them is weird. They're like, they look like standard starships. And I'm like, okay, what's a standard starship? Like, are these, are these, like, I kind of pictured a generic saucer section hull and warp engines kind of thing. But like, I don't know what he was going for exactly. What is a standard starship? I I don't know what that means. (laughs) Uh, You know, a standard starship. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a standard starship, because the ones that we see in Star Trek, they're all pretty standard. They're all pretty much the same. Well, they have nacelles. And yeah. A, yeah, and a saucer section. And a roundy bit. And a, and a bit. bit underneath. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. So, yeah, I was kind of picturing just Federation ships, but Borg looking. I don't know. Yeah. Well, those are defeated, was- at least two of them, I think, at this point. And then we're at the battle near Earth, and joining the battle is a fleet of ships that join up with the Enterprise and Captain Mackenzie Calhoun of the Excalibur A at this point. He's there and they're accompanying the Enterprise and they make Picard acting Commodore of the fleet. Which Jellicoe just loves. (laughs) Yes, Jellicoe's loving this whole thing as he's stuck in his bunker. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> the bunker that will be remain floating in space if the entire earth is destroyed as well which i thought was interesting <laughs> just the admirals get to go in that one i guess <laughs> so the bunker is like in superman's the phantom zone they just fly into space like help me help me help me friend. <laughs> anyway so anyway after this battle the doomsday machine is fighting the borg but it starts to get absorbed into the Borg cube. So if it's getting absorbed into the Borg cube, the Borg cube is going to get larger and it's bringing in this doomsday machine that has seven in it. 
And so her essence is also being absorbed into the Borg cube. Now, remember, Janeway is the queen, is the Borg queen of this. And so now there's an interaction between Seven and Janeway in this. And so Seven is able to convince Janeway to briefly separate her consciousness from the Borg so that Seven can release we didn't talk about this much, but to release the Endgame virus, because this is a virus that previously they were going to use against the Borg and didn't. And then they implanted this into Seven as a backup plan. Right. So it's a mathematical geometric shape that the Borg can't analyze correctly because it can't exist in reality. That's from the TNG episode, I, Borg. They were going to release it into the collective through Hugh. Uh, but Picard changed his mind, which Nicheyev has been mad at him about ever since. <laughs> yeah, so I I, I kind of liked, first of all, I always felt that the, the virus should have been used long ago. So it's great that we're using it here. And it does work. It does kill this Borg, but it doesn't kill the whole Borg collective. Or right. So we think. Yeah, they, they're kind of, so... And and this is something that gets, if I remember correctly, gets explored a little bit more in the next novel as to like the nature of the Borg at this time. And I feel like Christopher Bennett's uh, Greater Than the Sum, which is the next novel, kind of does a lot to like, oh, okay, that's what's going on here, you know, which, you know, he's very good at. I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but in this novel, yeah, it, it does disrupt the Borg and, and cause them to kind of um, malfunction here. At least the ones on this cube. So let's get to the end of this. So now the Borg cube has been basically destroyed by using a virus. And therefore, even though Janeway was able to separate her consciousness from the Borg at that moment, she's still part of the Borg. So what ends up happening is... Janeway dies. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Admiral Catherine Janeway dies in Star Trek in this novel. She's gone forever, dead, never to return again. Or maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or does she? <laughs> or does she? So just so you know, if you haven't read this book, the way this book ends, we get to the second to the last chapter, I think it is, or no. Uh, there's at some point here. So yeah, the second to the last chapter here, we find out that Janeway is, I'm going to say this absorbed into the Q continuum because now she's there and she's talking to the Q. So then you're like, wait, is Janeway really dead or is she part of the Q for now? Because she's now having exchange with lady Q. And I remember at the time after reading this, I thought, Oh, okay. Janeway's not really dead. She's, with the Q, so she'll be able to return at some point doing something. But there were so many people that read this book that I would see online talk about how Janeway's dead. She's dead. She's never coming back. I can't believe they killed off Janeway. And they were pissed about it. And I'm like, she's not really dead. Did you read the second to the last chapter? She's with the Q. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's kind of one of those things where I always remember this as being the novel where Janeway died. And reading it here, I was like, oh, yeah, I, di I didn't remember that she went off with Q at this. And by Q, of course, we, we mean Lady Q, Susie Plaxon's Q. Um, I'd kind of forgotten that. And uh, the fact that it's really ambiguous 
kind of struck me as odd because yeah, she's treated as dead, dead, um, by the books, which makes sense because who would know any better? And, but also by the fans, like they, a lot of people seem to really dislike this novel because it killed off Janeway. I really dislike this novel, not because of that. <laughs> like I don't, I, I thought that was actually kind of a gutsy move and an interesting move that, you know, something non-canon would take a character from the canon and do something like that with her. Um, I don't know that it was the right move. I don't know that it was a smart move, but it was definitely a gutsy move. Like, wow. Okay. We're, we're going to do this. All right, cool. Um, and I, I don't hate it for that. I think, uh, I think that's interesting. I don't hate but, it for that uh, either. And yeah. it didn't really bother me that much. Cause like I said, I, I felt like there was a, definitely an out. So I didn't really think she was really dead, but regardless, my criticism though, if she were killed and this was the final Janeway moment and she was not with the Q, she actually is dead. It just, she deserves a better novel for her ending. Yeah. And I, I don't and she mean she deserves that, a Voyager novel, not a TNG novel for that to happen. Well, yeah, that, yeah, it should be in a Voyager novel and it should be more of a Janeway novel, a Janeway story leading up to this. I mean, we get Janeway in the first couple of chapters and that's really all we get of Janeway until the very end. So, yeah, and, and the rest of the novel, she's just the face of the Borg queen, right. which is, you know, grotesque in and of itself, I think. And you has know, a small the, role. It's not. Yeah, exactly. Role. So. Yeah. And I, I've again, mentioning about Peter David at conventions, I've heard him say that I think that was one of the ideas or directives he was given was he could kill off Janeway or the, I think maybe they said to kill off Janeway, something to that effect. And he was like, okay, well, there you go. I'm killing off Janeway. And then they came back to him and they said, well, we said you can kill off Janeway, but you need to find a way where she's not really dead. And he's like, okay. And he's just like, make up your mind, people. What are we doing here? So I know that he doesn't seem to be very happy with this book because I think some of the directions and changes in direction that he was given with this novel. So I don't think this is one of, for him, one of his favorite novels that he's written. No. And yeah, I get that impression. I've heard him speak a little bit about it as well. And yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, I, I, again, I don't want to ascribe motivations to someone who I don't know and haven't talked to directly about this, but it feels like his heart's not in this one, just from the writing. Like, I, I hate the phrase phoning it in, but <laughs> some parts of this novel just really feel like that. And apologies to fans of this novel. I'm just, that's the feeling I get when I'm reading most parts of it few exceptions for sure yeah well not everything can be a home run from someone but uh no for sure you know but uh, so just to call out a few other things we were talking about on the other side of the page uh there's a scene where uh what were you saying dan that someone said about there's no lady borg oh yeah okay so there's a quote and uh Bruce thank you for kind of giving me the background on this one but um there there's a there's a conversation uh where they're talking about how a borg expert has asserted that there's no such thing as a female borg 
And Seven of Nine says, that is ridiculous. That would make no sense. Who would postulate such an absurd notion? Now, reading this novel so soon after Resistance, that was said in the novel Resistance. So I was like, wow, that's kind of mean of Peter David to just call out J.M. Dillard from two novels ago about this, uh, you know, fact that there are no female Borg. But you told me something that makes a heck of a lot more sense as as to why that part's in the book and so blatantly in this book. Yeah. So when Peter David wrote Vendetta, uh, it had all books at that time had to be screened through uh, licensing who Richard Arnold was responsible for at the time. There has been some criticisms from some of the authors of how books were handled at that time that, you know, it was very more... Uh, restrictive in what you could do in a novel. And when Peter was writing Vendetta, he had a female Borg and Richard Arnold came back and said, you can't do that. There's no such thing as a female Borg. And Peter's like, well, how do you know? Who says there isn't? He's like, well, because there just isn't. You haven't seen one on screen. And Peter's like, well, just because I haven't seen one on screen doesn't mean that, you know, what happens to, you know, they don't assimilate females. And Richard's like, there's just no such thing as a female Borg. So they put in the front of the book a disclaimer that this book may not fit into the universe created by Gene Roddenberry. (laughs) And that didn't go over well with with peter david and so you know he's like here he's being told there's no such thing you can't have a female borg and then years later we get seven of nine and so and so this is kind of you know seems to be a callback to that of well there's you can't have a female borg uh yes you can (laughs) so that's where i think that comes in at and like the the phrasing by seven that makes so much more sense because of that very long-standing um let's say friction between peter david and richard arnold the fact that seven is like who would be so stupid as to say something like that basically (laughs) and yeah okay that makes way more sense now (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah there's a little fun little stories in this if you're ever at a convention uh Ask Peter David about this novel and Vendetta, and there's some good stories in this. The other thing I want to mention, too, is Lady Q. Uh, there was a officer, a con officer in the Enterprise, John Stevens, who originally transferred from the Excalibur. And uh, we come to find out that, you know, he's a little strange and doesn't really quite fit in with Picard's style and his his crew. And it's not really John Stevens. It's really the Q, Lady Q playing this character which i thought was uh you know there's some amusing parts where you know he's uh for example one part that i remember is where picard says set a course for i don't know if it was earth at the time or sigma um the the doomsday machine planet uh and he says okay uh how fast do you want me to go he's like ah warp two are you sure because warp six i could go i could do warp six maybe even seven he's like oh no two will be fine and all right, Captain, he's like, oh, those transfers from the Excalibur. Calhoun's crew is always so weird. <laughs> and I did like that. I thought that was kind of funny. But of course, it turns out to not be even one of Calhoun's crew, though. Right. But when that scene starts and he's like, oh, I can do warp six. I'm like, OK, this is going a little over the top. This is getting too silly. But then when you're like, oh, he's from the Excalibur. And, oh, it's really cute. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of rolling my eyes as well, but... You know, okay, yeah, Peter David's silliness, okay. But then 
then it actually kind of figures into the plot somewhat. So it kind of redeemed itself at the end for me. I do like Peter David's silliness stuff, but yeah, sometimes it can be over the top, but silliness is something I really enjoy of his, <laughs> his, his comedic <laughs> style. So that being said, Dan, final thoughts, ratings. What do you think? I, I have no idea. I'm on the edge of my seat. What do you think of before dishonor? Oh, I've been kind of dreading this because I, I don't like, I, I always try and be very positive. And in this discussion, I've recognized there are things that I like in this book. I like the character of Grim Vargo, for example. I like the stuff with the Doomsday Machine. Um, I like some of the character work with Seven of Nine and that sort of thing. But there's a lot in it that just really rubs me the wrong way. That Peter David silliness that we talked about, I think, fits really well when it's used right. But in this book, some of it just seems a little shoehorned in, in ways that, you know, don't make a lot of sense when it comes to Picard and his crew. Um, and then the character assassinations, and I'm, I'm calling it that, of those newcomers that I was actually interested in, for the most part... I feel like their characters are just, you know, really put through the ringer here as far as um, making them unsympathetic and that sort of thing. And then the fact that they're allowed to stay on the ship at the end after having committed mutiny. And that makes no sense to me. Talana is gone, thankfully. I think uh, I would have liked to see where her character was going if the characterization from Q&A had continued forward. But based on what happened in this novel and the attitudes that we get from her, I'm glad she's gone because like, no, that's enough of that character. Um, but the fact that the other two, Kedohara and Lebenzon, are still on the Enterprise and Picard forgives and forgets. He's like, oh, we can overlook that. <laughs> can you though? Really? Like, oh, that that irks me. Um, and then just some of the over the topness of like, you know, the Borg ship eating Pluto. I, <laughs> it's just a little over the top. It's silly. And then plus, you know, the NASA science nerd in me is going to, you know, put on my nerd glasses here and, you know, where, where Jellico and Necheyev are talking about, um, you know, the Borg have eaten Pluto. It's the only planet in the system that doesn't have some fool colonists trying to turn hell into paradise. And Jellicoe looks up in surprise, planet? You mean dwarf planet? And Necheyev says, no, planet. They changed it back again. Like this is some sort of thing that goes back and forth. And maybe you made a good point on the other side of the page. Maybe that will happen in the future. But as it stands, if Pluto is a planet... That means there's like 150 at least other Pluto size and bigger things in our system that would also be planets. So there's a reason that we call it a dwarf planet and not a planet. But anyway, that's that's all beside the point. That just kind of bugged me a little bit. You say dwarf planet. I say planet. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the fact so I, I know I've harped on this point. The fact that this book just doesn't fit narratively with the other books, it doesn't feel like the same story being told, which is weird because so many pivotal things happen in this. We have the death of Janeway. We have, you know, a Borg ship threatening to completely destroy Earth and coming very close to doing so. So the fact that this book just doesn't feel like it fits, but it has to fit because of things that happen in it put it in a really weird position. And I, I hate 
to give a low rating. And I will tick it up a little bit because of the things that I like in the novel, but I have to give it, I think, two out of five flaming standard Borg starships. Wow. They're, they're standard starships. They're standard, they're standard starships. You, you know the ones, the standard ones. Okay, the standard Not automatic transmission, standard transmission oh, okay. starships. <laughs> yeah, I, I was never good with stick shift. <laughs> um, this, is, this is a tough one for me. I, I don't like to give low ratings either, but I will. I mean, if I'm really not enjoying the book. That being said... There are issues that I agree with Dan on this 100%, but the reason I can't give it as low of a rating is because I actually enjoyed it. It was just, it was one of the things where, yeah, there's times I'm kind of rolling my eyes. I'm like, oh, this is over the top. Oh, this is a little, you know, dorky. It's a little too much. And I'm not really liking this one of Peter David's other stuff because I love his other stuff, but. But at the same time, I was like, I couldn't wait to get to the next chapter and I couldn't wait to get to the next one. I just kept going and going and going. And I was like, I started realizing I'm, I'm actually enjoying this, whether it's good or bad. <laughs> I'm actually kind of like interested in where this is going. And I've read this before. And maybe because I also came in with low expectations because I didn't really care for it the first time I read it. So that being said, I would say that, um, it's, it, it's also, like I said at the beginning, you know, there's certain ways like some comics are written and like I mentioned gold key at one point and there's times I read gold keys where I'm like, this is just so silly and this is just so bad, but it was funny at the same time. And I enjoyed it. I kind of felt that way this time. I agree with you. It does not feel, fit well with the narrative of the other novels that are going on before and after this and that whole storyline with the Borg leading up to destiny. So I'm going to just, I'm going to say, uh, I'll give this three, three admirals out of five in a bunker that just sitting there watching the war. I, I don't know, but there's times I feel like giving it closer to three and a half to four, just because I did have fun with it. And there were times I did laugh out loud. Yeah, no, I mean, I can, I can, I can understand that. And I, would feel probably the same if it wasn't a part of this ongoing narrative. That's the thing that just keeps sticking in my head that like, you know, gold key comics are their own thing. If this novel was its own kind of standalone thing, it would feel better to me. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Now, now I'm with you. I think as a, yeah, if you put it in the series and you, and just look at that, yeah, it, it kind of really sticks out. Not in a good way, but, uh, it's memorable. Let me just say that too. That is true. Of the novels we've read that I had read before, I remembered the most about this one reading it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of, it's a sequel to Vendetta, which I really loved Vendetta. So that's true too. Yeah. I liked that part of it for sure. Yeah. I'm kind of in the middle on this one. So, you know, on this show, I find that it's rare that we're uh, kind of on different sides uh, when it comes to our opinion about things, generally speaking, we tend to be kind of in the same camp, but I feel like this one, we were a little bit uh, further apart than usual, not, not really far apart, but a little further apart than we usually are. And that was that kind of made for a fun discussion. I thought 
It did. And I was really looking forward to discussing this because of that reason. I had a feeling that you probably didn't like it. And I was finding myself liking it more than I used to. And, and it really is something that is a little odd because I, I, I love Peter David's work. I love his Star Trek novels. Yeah. A lot of times they're different from other novels in the new frontiers. So different. They have their own style. They have their own stuff. Like there's times I watch the Orville and I think, oh, Peter would be great to to write like an Orville novel. <laughs> you know? Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. Or an Orville episode because he wrote episodes of Babylon Five, right? So, right. Like, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's things like that that I see. Heck, I even think he'd write a good Star Wars novel, but that's a whole other thing. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, this one it's just it just something didn't click right. But there were still aspects of it that I really had fun with. But anyway, it's been fun talking about. Peter David and his silliness and his not so silliness or whatever today, but this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at other things that you'll find elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM to the journey. <laughs> in the seven That's all I could think about with that this one. Is, this is the Seinfeld in space episode. I keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do it? Can you do, can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief! No, not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that super high pitched da 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 kind of. I don't know. Kind yeah. of voice. Well, that you did really well. The da 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 da. So yeah, there you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? <laughs> Earl Grey. Time travel and alternate no. timelines. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Unacceptable selection. Please try Unacceptable again. selection. Does this fit no, your I'm original serious. definition of how you define a villain? No. Justin. <laughs> Possibly not. Okay but then, but continue. Let me, okay. Literary treks. The Antares Maelstrom is mentioned by Khan in The Wrath of Khan. He's got his whole big monologue when he's vowing vengeance on James T. Kirk, you know. I'll chase him around the Antares Maelstrom and the runes of Nibia, you know. So what is the Antares Maelstrom? To my surprise, oh, no one had ever actually written a book or a comic book about the Antares Maelstrom, which Khan famously name checks. Standard Orbit. He even has another line like, you're a doctor. Like he tells his doctor, I'm like, that is so original series. Oh, love it. like if you, I'm telling you guys, like uh-huh. if you have not seen this episode, you will see Star Trek all over it. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we would love it if you would leave us a star rating and a written review. Let us know what you think. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep the shows coming to you each and every week you can do that by becoming a patron on the network on patreon visit patreon.com slash trek fm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trek fm to get all the details 
Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Here on Literary Treks, we love feedback, and there are many ways for you to let us know your thoughts on the show. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send an email to us, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And find us on Goodreads, where we have a group there where we have a bookshelf with all of our previously covered books as well as what we're currently reading. You'll find that section on there so you'll know what is coming up on future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not putting on your nerd glasses and complaining to people that Pluto really is a planet or a dwarf planet or whatever it is, dwarf planet, I know, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter arguing with people that say Pluto is a planet. Actually, I don't really argue with whatever. I thought you Pluto was a dog. Want. <laughs> you know how uh you know how uh when you arrive on a planet how you can tell that it's Pluto? How? You feel around for the trees and you can tell by the bark. Oh, gosh. <laughs> when I'm not making really lame jokes like that, you can find me on Twitter, where I'm actually probably making lame jokes like that. I'm at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, uh, where I have a YouTube channel talking about Star Trek. I also have a book review website at www.treklit.com, reviewing Star Trek novels, both old and new. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference. Now, Bruce, when you're not freelance piloting a ship around and dropping off Borg drones on Vulcan, where can we find you? Well, you can find me being logical on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can also find me being logical on the Star Wars Report podcast, where I talk about Star Wars logically. And logic dictates that I should be on a show called Live from the Edge when a new episode of Discovery comes out. And you can find me giving lots of logical comments in the Babel Conference on Facebook. So that's fascinating. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that is fascinating. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>